Hello and welcome to another episode of Tech Beyond the Hype, the podcast that explores how the latest advancements in business and tech are shaping the future of how we work. I'm your host, Anna Salomboira, and in today's episode, we're exploring what it takes for organisations to make a success of digital transformation. Today's guest, Kamal Ishlardi, is a pioneering voice in the field, listed as top 10 global thought leaders in digital transformation by Thinkers360, and recognised in the international 40 over 40, world's most inspiring women by Capgemini Invent and Female One Zero. With over 23 years of experience advising and guiding a range of multinational corporations through their own transformation journeys, she has a unique perspective on the key elements required to successfully implement change across entire organisations. Without giving too much away, Kamalish is also the author of the best-selling book, The Human Side of Digital Transformation. This should give you a bit of an idea of what we'll be discussing, the impact and importance of people and leaders as drivers and implementers of change in digital transformation. Get ready for a really insightful discussion. I hope you get as much out of the episode as I did. Before I hit play, I do have a small favour to ask of you. If you're a fan of this show, please do make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really makes a difference to us and will help us continue attracting high-profile industry experts as guests for the show. Thank you so much, and on with the episode. So, Kamanesh, thank you so much for joining me today for Tech Beyond the Hype. I am super excited to have you on. Before we get started, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do for work? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So my background is really in technology. I entered the space uh, in the early 90s and I've uh, never regretted being in this space. I think it's an awesome environment that's constantly changing and dynamic. Um, I've been in management consulting, so strategic development and advisory for organizations as well as technology implementation for over 23 years. Uh, I was with companies like Accenture and I was the head of Deloitte Digital in Switzerland. And I also started my company, Ladin Partner Consulting, back in 2012. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to consult for companies across the globe in digital transformation as well as technology implementation. And so that's the core area of work that I'm in. But I've also done a variety of different things, lecturing at universities as well as mentorship of startups. I've also written uh, books. Most recently, The Human Side of Digital Business Transformation, which is published by Wiley. I just read the book and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So just for listeners out there, check it out when you can. How would you describe digital transformation? What do you mean by that? Because it's obviously a term that is thrown around a lot in business spaces. And more specifically, what do you mean when you're talking about the human side? Uh, That's a great question. And... Digital transformation is a terminology that's been overused and hyped across the industries. And I think, you know, as long as we've used technology in business, digital transformation has existed as a topic, and it's basically the application of tech in the business space. So it can be a fairly broad definition, but what it truly is, and the way I look at this definition is an organization-wide change that leverages technology solutions preparing the organization for a digital economy or digital future. So it is a fairly broad space. Oftentimes we do see companies focusing on the tech 
implementation, so utilization of specific types of technology, or looking at digital and online channels as touch points for, to their customers. But it is a much broader space. We look at it as four specific building blocks, touch points to customers or creating customer experiences that are superior uh, products and services, digitization, as well as uh, people, process and operations. So utilizing technologies to optimize operations, processes, as well as upskilling people and creating capabilities that prepare the organization for the future. And of course, business model innovation, which technology can enable quite a few different revenue sources today for companies. And so we do look at these four quadrants. And when we talk about the human side of digital transformation, again, many organizations that I've worked with over the last two decades have often focused on the digital side, the tech side of things. And the people side is oftentimes, you know, misunderstood or underrepresented within the digital transformation space. And so it's quite important to understand that in my experience, what I've seen is people are the element or the success factor that can make or break any digital transformation in a company. People are the utilizers of tech. They are the ones that define what is successful and not within a customer journey or an employee journey. And they are the ones that advocate for the technology and the application of technology. And so companies need to really focus on taking people on a journey. And this could be internal and external stakeholders. So we often focus on customers, but internally you have employees, you have leadership teams, you have um, shareholders and owners of organizations. And externally you have customers, but you also have partners and service providers and collaborators that create an entire ecosystem working together to drive a positive future for the organization. So this collaboration across the entire ecosystem is what's going to make a company successful in the digital future. So in the book, one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting was on the amygdala response and how kind of new changes can create a sort of fight or flight response from people within the organization. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how it works? What are businesses getting wrong that causes this fight or flight response when it comes to new changes? So organizations are really like a living organism, right? You can imagine it like to be a human body or any living uh, organism. And it is made up of different elements, so systems, processes, touch points, workflows, people, interactions, and so on. All of these coming together, it's kind of a living system. And the living system is designed to operate under status quo. As is today, that's how it survives. Now, any new element that's introduced into this living system, just like if a virus is introduced to the human body, the first thing the body does, it, it rejects or it fights against it because it wants to return to status quo. And this is also true of human behavior, right? We are creature of habit. We get used to a certain way of doing things. And when we are introduced to a certain change, we tend to resist the change. Uh, very few of us embrace change quickly, right? There's always a, a certain transition moment. Now, unfortunately, within this kind of living organism environment, the change that's being introduced, the new element, could be something that could create new opportunities or exponential growth for the organization. But the organization system doesn't recognize this. It just recognizes change and fights against it. So we sometimes see people resisting new systems. We see process environments that are, you know, resistant to change. And at the essence of it all is really the people environment, right? People are resisting the change. 
And so what we try to do is within this digital transformation space, and at the core of digital transformation, it is change. It's about changing the way we do things today to do it better, more efficiently, more quickly, to gain more productivity and to gain more revenues out of what we're doing, as well as to create some kind of exponential growth or scale. This is the, the core of what we're trying to do with digital transformation. And so this change could trigger resistance from the existing environment. Now, what we try to do within this space is really look at understanding the motivations or the reasons behind the resistance. And this is a big part of digital transformation. It's really understanding, oftentimes it comes back to fear of change, right? Fear of where would I sit as an individual or as a team within this new construct? Or how will this change the way I'm doing things today? Or do I have the skill sets? Will my skill sets be transferable into this new environment? Am I able to learn new skill sets? So a lot of these things come back to fear. And it also comes back to a loss of control, particularly if you look at middle or top management level, right? People who have done certain things a certain way for a number of years and are resistant to changing the way they've done things, particularly if you look at more senior people in leadership roles having to learn new technology skill sets. So this is the resistance or the loss of control or creating transparency within the environment. And transparency breeds questions around, are you doing things the right way? Is this how you should be doing it? Can we change the way you do things to create better outputs? And a lot of this breeds fear in individuals. Mm. And so we need to address those fears first. And the way we, one of the ways we do that is really to create just inspiration or this feeling of awe, right? They're creating the excitement for what could be and when individuals could be in, you know, in the near future with these new applications, what could be possible in their work environment? What is the benefit for these teams or individuals or for the organization as a whole? And this is what we call digital transformation is the transformation part, taking people on this journey, showing them the vision of where they could be. And then how do you go towards that vision together? And that has a lot to do with leadership. Right. That's so interesting. I, li I like the way that you combine, I think it's a conversation that's really lacking is the human psychology element of transformation. So like there's a lot of people who talk a lot about innovation and advocating for change and trying to make big organization-wide changes without actually thinking about the impact on the individual at any level of the organization. Would you say it's like, storytelling that's missing or is there other elements that also are needed when it comes to leadership through those kinds of transformation? So there are a few elements. One key piece is really having clear purpose and values, having a good foundation of why the change needs to happen in your organization and being driven by the right values, right? So if I give you a positive example, a company with strong purpose and values would look at digital transformation as an opportunity to upskill employees, to transform, you know, to create people transformation in a more positive way. Let's say you're applying a generative AI solution that could speed up certain processes within your business. What happens to the employees who used to do that work? So can we upskill them? Can we transfer them into different areas? Can they focus on more complex activities? So repositioning the organization redefining the organization structure and the role definitions, or even training these employees to utilize these tools, right? Because I don't see technology replacing people, but I see people working in cohesion with technology. That's where you get real value. And so 
uh, a company with strong purpose and human values will really focus on how can we make this transformation with the people. Whereas if you have many organizations that have had conversations with senior executives who are looking at replacing people with tech and without much thought into how this will look in five to 10 years or even in three to four years, right? Not even that long a time frame. What's going to happen within the organization? And not even having consideration for elements like diversity or oversight, compliance. A, a lot of these regulatory frameworks around use of new tech have not been fully defined. So replacing that human oversight, that human element with tech in spaces, for example, healthcare, financial services, recruitment. There was a recent survey that I looked at where over 80% of the HR leadership that was surveyed were looking at implementing some sort of AI-based solution within HR. And HR includes recruitment, people management, uh, learning and development, talent management, and so on. What happens in an environment when you utilize AI skill sets or AI systems to replace people? You know, you lose that element of human oversight that could bring in common sense, that could bring in balanced views, diversity, that could challenge certain decisions that are being made. AI systems, for example, focus a lot on uh, utilizing trend data or existing data sets. And existing data sets has been known to lack diversity. So if you're hiring someone, they look at trend information. And if by trend you've hired leadership of a certain profile, you're going to continue hiring leadership of that profile. You're not going to look at people outside of these profile descriptions. So it, it becomes a, a much bigger, more challenging situation. And so we have to really look at purpose and, and values as a kind of core element within the transformation space. And then we need to look at leadership taking you know, a kind of mindset shift within leadership, understanding what these shifts are, how they're going to be implemented. And beyond that, you go into storytelling where you have to be able to tell a good story to take people on a journey. And storytelling requires transparency. It requires data sets and information to justify, to create a kind of certain business case behind why you're doing what you're doing and also creating closeness, you know, creating a sense of communication and closeness. So you want to be able to understand the motivations of employees and what, what drives them to react a certain way and how do you communicate to these different groups. And that could be quite challenging as well. You might have different layers of people, different education levels, different backgrounds within the organization. So how best do you communicate to these different groups? All of this comes into play. Absolutely. That's really cool. And thinking about the kind of diversity and inclusion element or trying to get diverse perspectives when it comes to, for instance, AI technologies. One of the challenges that comes to mind when you were talking was that certain profiles, so for instance, I have a chronic condition, so I'm disabled. How can you encourage a situation where people feel comfortable bringing that level of transparency about their own profiles to the table in a business environment? Because so for instance, there's, I read recently that there's like very little data about how many people within organizations have a disability, for instance. There's a lot of information when it comes to gender and increasingly more information about ethnic profiles. But then there's a whole load of other types of difference that we tend to ignore or we tend not to think about when, when it comes to implementing these systems. And mm -hmm. people within 
the organization, say at a lower level, may feel uncomfortable sharing that information for fear of losing their job or being treated differently within the organization. So how would you suggest people approach that? This is a very important question, and it's something that I have a very passionate belief in. I think creating an environment of psychological safety in the business space that allows people to be open. And disability isn't even something that I see a lot of companies addressing, right? There's so much focus on DEI initiatives and the companies tend to highlight those focus when it comes around to 8th of March every year. You see a lot of noise around those topics. But what we've also seen, particularly in the tech industry over the last you know, six to eight months, is many of the people being laid off in the tech industry. And we've seen about 200, 300,000 people being laid off across the world, uh, or even more. If, if I look at the current numbers, many of them were from HR, talent management, and DEI teams. And so I think there are several aspects to address this. One is from the organization perspective and having a, a real commitment. And real commitment isn't about you know, 8th of March and uh, highlighting certain times of the year from a kind of surface level, but really going down into the deep roots of the organization. Also, leadership commitment to those elements. Um, I can share a recent example where I was in a discussion about promotions for an employee. And on the surface level, the organization was very vocal about diversity and inclusion and having one employee who is trans and having uh, openness towards disability and so on. One of the people up for promotion had just had a child a couple of months before and during the discussion it was raised, well, this person might not be able to focus because they just had a child. And this is not a priority for them at the moment, so the promotion should go to someone else. And this is such a wrong discussion because to that person, to that individual and to other people within the organization, the leadership team vocalized support for diversity. But in true sense, there was no support. There was a bias. Uh, and this for me was quite shocking because it, it came down to the realities of how things are done. So does this create a false sense of security for people to share their situation? I can tell you, me as a mother, I very rarely share. I think it was only in recent years that I started to share information that, about my child. Early on in my career, for about, I would say, eight, nine years, I hid the fact that I had a child. I very rarely raised discussions in a business setting because there was a significant bias in that space, right? You as a mother, are you able to commit yourself? Those decisions were made for me. Before I was asked whether I could commit time to a project, decisions were made about, well, she has a child, she probably can't commit to a project, so let's not give it to her. So it took the opportunity and the choice and the options out of my hands before I even knew about them. And so I stopped sharing that information. But now I'm extremely vocal because I'm in a position where I can say, if you as an organization or as a team don't want me with my situation, condition, environment, and all of the nuances of my life, then you're not the right space for me. But not everyone has that luxury. I understand this as well, right? Um, if you are depending on a certain job, it, it is difficult. So I think there are a few, few layers. We go back to your initial question. Organizations need to commit and commit at the depth, not at the surface level. And stay true to those commitments. How do you stay true to that? It's the leadership teams in the organizations ensuring that people are given the psychologically safe environment to communicate their situations 
and they're not penalized for it. There's no consequence for sharing. Someone might have mental health issues. Someone might have burnout. You know, we need to be able to have these conversations without making people feel like something's wrong with them. Because we are, as human beings have many facets to our being, right? We're not just one dimensional. And companies are far away from this, to be honest. On the individual side, my advice is don't be ashamed or don't hide the, the situation you're in. I, I think millennials and Gen Zs today are much more bold in that sense, right? More open, more bold, and they are unforgiving and unapologetic about their, their situation. And I think that comes from the aspect of digital as well, because they have so much more opportunity out there today. You can go out and create your online business. You can create new opportunities for yourself. And they're digital natives. They know how these platforms and channels and the engagement on digital platforms work. They can create business for themselves. They can create revenue sources. And this, I think, is exciting because it's giving these traditional companies a run for their money. Right? How are you going to start engaging and attracting talent of the next generation when they are demanding so much more? And I think this is, this is an exciting aspect. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think that there's been a huge shift in the past, say, I mean, personally, I'd say it's probably since the pandemic that there's been a real marked shift when it comes to how people are talking about difference and how bold people feel they can be when it comes to their different profiles and layers of difference. Going back to what you said about being a mother and having people kind of making decisions over your head, that's something that resonates so much with me. It's something that I've had happen time and time again when raising issues with my condition and why I couldn't do certain parts of the role. It's like people within the team then feel that it's their job to make decisions over my head that often don't really have the impact that I would have hoped. Instead, they kind of just put you into a different category or they very restricting. I think when people make decisions about your role on the assumption of who you are without actually having any experience of, of your life. I, I believe that, you know, this comes from, there could be two aspects, right? One is if, if we you know, and there are, and we have to be quite honest, it could be from a malicious perspective or a very competitive perspective where a, a team member might say, okay, it's my opportunity to kind of take over something or uh, it's too much effort to, to include this person. And so let's just go ahead and decide and do it. I've seen that happen, but it could also come from a lack of knowledge or a, a genuine belief that they are doing us a favor. Where, you know, I'm making your life easier and I'm helping you address this issue by taking that decision away from you. Uh, and I've had that situation as well. I, and I've had to educate the person by saying, when you take my choice away, you take my power away, you take my ability away. Ability to do and perform and demonstrate that things can be done in a different way. It doesn't have to be done the way you've pictured it. It can be done differently. And let me show you, right? So in your sense, uh, a person with disability would approach the same task. You get the work done, but you just get it done differently. Whereas, you know, as a working mom, I might not be at the office until 9 p.m. I would go home, pick up my child, have dinner with her, and then log on at 9 and be, be on till midnight. But I get the job done with high quality. It might be a, a different way of doing things. And I think this openness is very important. Openness to learn, the awareness that, 
things can be done in a different way. I like to say, um, you know, there's more than one way to cook an egg. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it doesn't have to always be boiled or fried. And organizations often get stuck in that mindset of, you know, the only way to cook an egg is to fry it. And everyone's always eaten the fried egg that way. And, you know, it doesn't have to be fried. You can poach, you can boil, you can do many things. You can make an egg salad and all of the outcomes are delicious and could be very beneficial. But you have to be open to trying new things. And I think this is what we're seeing as well with the global debate around work from home. Companies are resisting. <laughs> it's funny, I think there's a real, like you said, there's a real tendency for business as usual. I guess it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about this amygdala response of people just wanting to, or feeling comfortable having the same things happening or knowing what their role looks like and keeping within that kind of space makes them feel like they're in a position of control within their organization. But to go back a little bit to what you said about the challenge that new startups pose um, and the flexibility that they offer employees, I saw the TED talk that you gave recently in Geneva. And one of the things that you were talking about was the values contract. I thought this was such a cool idea of kind of keeping leaders, I guess, within incumbent organizations, keeping leaders accountable for making these sorts of changes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, it, it was something that was brewing in my mind for a while. As someone who has been, you know, in leadership in, in the tech industry for a number of years, I've recognized that we are held accountable oftentimes for financials, right? So the, the financial outcome, the growth, the sales, and very few leaders are being held accountable for longer term sustainable outcomes, for people outcomes. And I've seen time and again, organizations reward leaders for financial outcomes, despite bad behavior. If you pull in the right financial results, you can behave as badly as you want. You're not going to be reprimanded for it because you know, the company gets the outcomes, the, the shareholders get what they want, you know, and I've, I've seen some really, really terrible behavior being demonstrated across the tech industry. So this is something where I believe there needs to be an overhaul in terms of leadership behavior within the tech industry. Uh, the initial idea was an overhaul of leadership, <laughs> but that's a nice. little harder to achieve, particularly <laughs> the short term. Uh, so why not hold leaders accountable? And an example that I do use in, in the TED talk was when someone uh, had too much to drink and sits in a car, they're held accountable, right? They, they can be uh, taken to court. They can be, you know, put in jail. It's a serious offense because when you get into a car inebriated, you can endanger lives. Leaders in the tech industry are creating solutions that impact thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives with the solutions that go out in the market. And they need to be held at the same level of scrutiny and the same level of accountability. Uh, so the values contract concept comes back to let's sign an official contract with leaderships in the tech industry to hold them responsible for certain values and behaviors. So just like we have employment contracts, IT policies, data policy contracts, all of these different code of conducts that we sign, let's have a specific values contract that details kind of values behaviors that we want to see in leadership 
and we want them to demonstrate those values. Let's track those values as well, right? So looking at uh, specifically a values index where we can track and report on it, just like we're reporting on environmental, social, DEI type measures in an organization, let's publish these values behaviors as well that we can track and see how the leaders have been performing. And if they haven't met these values contracts and they haven't performed according to that, let's hold them accountable. And, you know, um, basically one of the things that I recommended in, in the TED Talk was to demote them in the organization and let them work off their values debt. So, you know, it, it, a lot of times leaders that I've spoken to and I've experienced, there is a feeling of once I'm at the top, nothing can shake me. So let's show them that you don't have the permanency that you think you have at the top. You can be demoted and you start working on the ground in the organization and work off your values debt for a number of months or weeks, whatever it may be. And so um, the proposal in the TED Talk is we need to revolutionize the technology industry by putting more impact and value on contracts like this, commitments to, to human values and to good behavior. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to see how the impact will be of this. Personally, I thought it was such a novel idea and something that, like you said, it kind of sits alongside ESG, but at more of an individual level when it comes to leadership, keeping people accountable for their behavior within organizations, which I guess in the wake of the Me Too movement happening all over the show and various other kind of scandals in other industries that have taken place with leaders showing that sense of being untouchable, like you said. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, if I can just read a, a quick example of Elon Musk, right? He's a very controversial figure and there are lots of people who support him and believe he's a hidden genius. So if we just take the scenario of what happened with Twitter, he bought over Twitter and subsequently dismantled the organization, fired 70% of the staff. And now it's heading in a direction where uh, the platform boasts of a certain conservative view and it, it's become a, a very different environment from what it used to be. And this comes down again to leadership setting the tone for how a organization or channel or construct works. So imagine if you had a values contract that he had to sign when he bought Twitter, right? A commitment to the values of the organization, of the employees that was set together by the employees saying, these are the values you have to follow. Would the organization have taken such a direction that it has today? This could be an interesting question to ask as well. And, you know, if you see some of the actions, another key element to look at within diversity is because he is who he is, right? He's a white male of uh, a certain age with a certain number of accomplishments. And he's got serious financial backing because people keep saying he's a hidden genius. He has potential. There's a genius behind it. There must be some plan behind it. Whereas if you imagine he was a person of color or, you know, someone with disability or uh, someone from that diversity perspective, wouldn't he or she been given the same trust. This I have to really question as well. It would have been a completely different scenario if a black woman had taken over Twitter and done the same thing. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, realistically, I don't think many black women would have like gone into it with so much ego. But no, I totally see your point. And I think the values contracts idea is so powerful because there are so many people in leaderships that do need to be held to account in a sense. Elon Musk is an example, but there's so many across so many different industries. How would 
the values contract work in practice? How would the accountability work? Who's responsible for making sure that that is carried out? If you've got leadership like, in the limelight of the contract, if you will, who's keeping them accountable? As I described in the talk as well, I think it has to be joint responsibility. It has to come from a, a regulated environment. So just like ESG and so on, the companies need to report on. We need to mandate organizations to report on these aspects as well. Yeah. Otherwise, it will not become a reality. We need shareholders and leadership to commit to it as well, to commit to signing it. If, if someone is being hired into a leadership or a C-level role and refuses to sign such a document, then you have a clear answer whether that person is committed and whether that person should even be hired. And you have then the employee, customer and the general public that should be informed and, and hold leaders accountable. Oftentimes, there is a lack of transparency within organizations. So from an external perspective, even as, as a general shareholder uh, in the market or as a customer, I don't see, and oftentimes even employees, they don't see what happens at the top of an organization, right? What's the plan? What's the strategy? Why are we doing things the way we're doing things? And this level of transparency is important. So one of the things that I described in the talk was to create a kind of hall of fame environment in every organization. Once they have signed the commitments to the values contract, we need to have a hall of fame that customers, the general public, as well as employees can share stories about how this person has demonstrated the leadership values or how they have not. And that should be shared without consequence as well. And this becomes almost a self-regulating environment where leaders are held accountable. So if you behave badly, your story goes on that board. Employees or customers will share the story and you need to you know, hold yourself accountable to that or you need to make sure that you're behaving in a better way. And this could be instances of even, you know, someone who goes to a public space as a leader of an organization and behaves badly, you know, screams at a waiter or uh, demonstrates you know, racism or gender bias or whatever it is. There should be a forum for this person to share stories about how that person behaved. He's CEO of XYZ company, but when he was in my restaurant, he behaved such and such, you know. And this is a scary perspective, right? To a certain extent, we have this in social media. And, you know, in extreme situations, we have that where people have been fired and so on. But we also do see senior executives and leaders who have been shamed on social media or shamed publicly, but still go back into senior roles, right? So they're not held accountable. And this is why it comes with that accountability of being demoted in your company and working off your value stack. <laughs> so in, in my mind, it's, it's a practical way of doing things. Uh, but I, I'd love to see a company step up and say, we'd like to pilot such a program. I love it. I think one thing that came to mind when you were talking is about cancel culture in the media. And this concept, I think some people could see it as an extension of cancel culture within the tech space. Um, but I guess the difference that I see between the two ideas is that the repercussion isn't that you're losing your job entirely and that you're going to kind of have to start from scratch, but rather that you might be pushed down a couple of levels and be asked to prove yourself again. Does that the of, uh, you know, with cancel culture, right, and, and we've heard all the debates. I've had these debates with my friends and, and you know, in, in my network as well. Is it to walk, uh, you know, with cancel culture? Are we really going into this space where 
um, you know, people are held accountable. Should we really touch their livelihoods and should that be the repercussion? And I think the problem with cancel culture is we've seen lots of people be fired from their jobs because of poor behavior and so on. But that's the end of it. What it creates is more resentment towards people of diversity. It creates more resentment and bad behavior. There's no lesson learned. Um, and they go and find another job. And that's that. And the behavior doesn't change. And this is something I do mention in the talk as well. It's not lasting. There is no sustainable change that we're looking for. And the whole concept of the values contract is you commit to something. So you're proactively saying, I commit to a certain type of behavior and values, right? So you're making that commitment yourself. Whereas within cancel culture, the person doesn't make that commitment. It's just what they do and how they've behaved. So once you make that commitment, then it's your responsibility to live up to it. And if you don't, it's also your responsibility. So you're proactively deciding what I commit to and how I want to behave. And if you don't agree to that commitment, you don't sign the commitment. That also speaks volumes about the person's values. I think this is where the commitment piece, it has to come hand in hand. The commitment, the tracking of the behaviors of the measures and the consequences that come with that. So once you commit to it and there is a consequence, you're proactively agreeing to that consequence, right? Where you say, okay, if I don't demonstrate these behaviors, I will be demoted for three months. I'm agreeing to it up front. So if I do break that contract, then I take the outcome that comes with it. I should be willing to take that outcome. Mm. So I think that's where the values contract makes a difference because you're proactively getting people to agree to certain things. And once they've committed to it, to live up to that commitment as well. Right. It brings a sort of humility to a space that has previously or conventionally lacked humility and it's been driven very much by ego and like you said, of financial gain. What would a good values contract include in terms of values? And how would you sell it to a leader to sign themselves up for this scenario? So I think this is a very, very good question. In the TED talk, I described vulnerability, authenticity, and empathy. And these three elements need to come together because being just authentic, you can be an authentic a-hole, right? <laughs> There's lots of those out there. <laughs> yeah, lots of those out there. You need to be authentic about being vulnerable and authentic about being empathetic towards others. And empathy means taking the time to listen and understand, so listening proactively and understanding another person's situation, putting yourself in their shoes. So if you're talking to a person with disability, putting yourself in their position to kind of understand what that scenario would look like if I was feeling that as well. You know, how would I react and how would I want people around me to be? The vulnerability aspect is being able to open up yourself two mistakes as well to say yes this is a learning for me I did something wrong here or I've got something to learn here I need to learn from you in terms of how do I become an ally to someone who has disabilities for example right what would you like me to do or to say or how best should I respond because it is a learning and all of this comes together with authenticity because it creates a sense of self-awareness of yourself and your surrounding so I question about self-awareness with a lot of the senior executives and tech leaders. How much self-awareness do you have? How your actions impact employees, impact customers, impact the products and services that you put out in the market? 
right? This creates a lot of self-awareness, questioning yourself about, am I doing the right thing? Are these the right values that I'm demonstrating? So these elements are really important to raise. And this comes as well with transparency, the openness to communicate, uh, ability to recognize when you've made a mistake or when you're taking a wrong direction, um, ability to learn from others or willingness to learn from others. And every stage of our lives, there's learning to be had. As someone who's been in digital transformation for you know, over two decades, every interaction I have with a new client, with an employee, with someone, I learn from them because it comes from a different perspective a different life experience, a different professional journey. And I think this is so critical. A lot of leaders hit a point and a lot of experts that I speak to as well hit a point where they feel, I know. And that's the kind of self-awareness that we're looking at. So th these are some of the things I would look for in a values contract. The open communication, the uh, building self-awareness, being able to listen proactively, being able to interact, creating closeness to employees and customers, having those touch points. Could you repeat the second part? Sure. So what's the kind of ROI for someone signing a values contract? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So can I, can I revert it back to you? Why do you think this has to be sold to senior execs in tech? I guess because... As you were saying, people are prone to seeing and doing things in a business as usual frame of mind. So I'm trying to position myself in the seat of a leader who's been in their company for a long time or that has achieved a certain level of seniority within their organization. And given the choice between signing and not signing, I think a lot of people especially since, as you were saying, there's a lot of people who like to think of themselves as authentic, but who really lack the self-awareness that's required to know when they are perhaps not meeting the value yeah. they hold. I, I think that's very true. You know, just the scope of experience that I've had. Um, I think that there would be a, a couple of different types of executives. Some would sign it believing that they could very easily deliver on it because they already are like that. And that may be true or may be contrary to their belief. There would be some who would readily sign it if there were no consequences behind it uh, or they believe there were no consequences behind it. Um, there would be some who reject it because they would say, at my level and experience and what I deliver to the company, this is you know, not something I, I should even be asked to sign. Uh, so there'll be many kinds of scenarios and which is why I, I made the reference to regulatory requirements, right? We need to have some kind of mandate that requires companies to deliver on this. Just like ESG probably five, 10 years ago, companies made open-ended commitments to it, but never really locked it down. And now we're seeing far more stringent kind of reporting and index requirements around ESG. We need to have something similar here where you say we need companies that have more purpose and value-driven initiatives and, and behaviors. And so let's lock it down as a way to track that. So mandating it would be one approach. Another approach, which I do mention as well in the talk, is tying it down to their performance and compensation plans, right? So executives who don't sign it will not hit the compensation levels that they could hit if they do sign. So there's kind of an additional element to it as well. Many people could argue as well that, especially what's going on with Hollywood at the moment, there's kind of a discrepancy anyway with senior executives and the pay structures and so on. But if you tie 
behavior and values to compensation plans. And these senior executives behave in an improved way and demonstrate better behavior. They will take care of the employees because they become more aware of themselves and more aware of the impact they have on employees. So it could be a scenario where they're forced to reflect and transform themselves as leaders and that transformation will impact the way they take care of employees. And so that would address pay gaps and parity and so on. So this, this for me, I, I would see it as an interesting, I don't want to say experiment, but exploration for companies. Right. So I think it's a really cool idea. And I think, I mean, going back to kind of digital transformation and also to play devil's advocate, what I said before, I think there's a real opportunity for organizations when it comes to authenticity and vulnerability. I think there's so many people who come to work with a mask and who present themselves in a specific framework. Shaking up that framework, in my opinion, can only bring good results, right? Because for such a long time, a whole load of people have been left out of senior leadership roles and of the key decision-making processes that have governed and lead organizations towards a certain future. So I like the way that this concept would keep people accountable for their own levels of self-awareness, maybe as a baseline by which you then are able to make bigger changes that create more opportunities for different people. Also, and something that you mentioned in the book, hierarchies and organizational structures. And, you know, digital transformation is a key element that requires leadership transformation. And over the last two decades, I've observed this. Any kind of tech implementation, any business transformation or digital transformation that we implement in a company, and it's not just necessarily relating to tech. It could be, you know, upskilling people. There's always an element of the leadership teams and how they drive these initiatives and that driving the success or failure of the initiative. If a leader within, let's say, within a, a organization environment, a chief technology officer has a leadership style that doesn't prioritize people and only looks at the technical. And I've had these situations numerous times, right, where they are looking at a new or a core system replacement uh, project, you know, the project plan just includes the technology development work and no element of business requirements, no element of people transitioning into these new systems, uh, no interaction or touch points between tech team and the business teams. This can be a major downfall because you will find this company trying to implement this core system multiple times and failing. And I'm speaking from real experience. So um, we oftentimes play the, the kind of touch points and go between to ensure this people interaction happens to drive successful implementation of tech. We've also seen many implementations of HR. Uh, so, you know, upskilling people, making them kind of future ready for the new organization environment and HR resisting the change because they feel that, you know, we have a traditional job description and we don't want to change that job description in preparation for this new environment. Uh, and so oftentimes when we do people transformation, we don't work with HR because HR tends to be the element that resists the change. And so we work directly with the you know, COO or the CEO of the company to implement uh, new roles and job description and competency models and then mandate HR to take them on. 
which is a shame because you know, HR departments do tend to be the kind of people-focused departments. So these are some of the experiences that I've had on the ground with organizations. And I think the leadership of these different departments and these organizations, they set the tone for how transformation is really executed. And if it's going to be sustainable change in the company or if it's just a new tool that's being forced to implement within the organization structure. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that there's so many organizations. I mean, I'm not in consulting or by any means have ex- the same levels of experience that you have. But I think even just reading into innovation and how many projects fall flat and how much money is invested into projects that then don't see fruition because, I mean, because multiple things, but I think like you're saying, the main element of it is people's resistance to change and the inability to forecast and implement processes that will allow people to feel like they're part of that change rather than being kind of having this thing just thrust on them because another challenge that I see is like there's a lot of technologies I mean every year I think I think you also mentioned this in the TED talk but somewhere I watch I've been watching a lot of your um <laughs> reading and watching a lot of your work in preparation for this podcast and um one thing that you said that struck me was about how every year there's a new hyped technology and businesses kind of jump on board or there's a sense of urgency to implement so for this year it's generative ai last year was metaverse big conversations but then really a lack of clarity around what is important and why so for the business leaders in our audience what advice would you give them when it comes to selecting or knowing what's important and what isn't yeah, the, the biggest advice I would give is stay away from trends and hypes. Um, what is really exciting on one hand is these rapid development of the technology, right? So if we think about Christmas last year, generative AI was on no one's radar, right? So uh, I mean, obviously we, we have been looking at it and there's been significant developments and so on, but industry companies, well, it wasn't on their radar. There was a lot of discussion last year about the metaverse, as you said. Um, there's been a lot of discussion before that about blockchain and crypto solutions and so on. So there's this hype cycle that goes on and suddenly ChatGPT hit a market access point where the masses got access to it and suddenly it became a, a kind of huge impact in the market. Potential is there definitely, but for companies, the best way to look at these things is to think about your digital transformation plan as a sustainable plan. And looking at your vision, where do you as an organization need to be in the next two or three years? Having consideration for the fact that so much will change in that time span. Where do you as an organization need to be? Is your strategic plan fit for future? Are you ready for these digital uh, environments? What should you get ready for? So these are the kinds of questions we ask. And every digital transformation plan is different for every organization. We take into account the industry and the business that you're in, but also the kind of DNA your organization has, your current digital maturity, as well as who your target audiences are, who they could be in the near future. And a lot of this looks at developing a roadmap that's unique to an organization. And a big part of that is a value proposition that you can create in the market, right? Implementing generative AI for the sake of implementing it is not going to create any sustainable outcome. Um, It could in the short term create some productivity impact, 
But is that your long-term solution? Is that your long-term digital transformation? No. Uh, so I, I tend to tell companies, let's focus on the strategic plan. Let's focus on building this roadmap for you. And then looking at what technologies are in the market that can deliver on that. So technology for me is more of an enabler. And it's an exponential enabler, right? It can create exponential opportunity. But it is still an enabler. At the core, you still need a strong plan and a plan that's flexible enough and dynamic enough that it takes into account the rapid changes in the market. So, for example, a company that created a digital transformation plan last year, how would you transform this plan or modify this plan taking into account generative AI, this kind of rapid development that we've seen in the last six months? So your plan should be flexible and dynamic enough to take these market trends into account. But there still has to be a thin red line that you're following towards the future. And you kind of know where that future is heading towards, right? And uh, as you implement different initiatives, you have to revisit the plan and look at now your digital maturity has increased. Perhaps we can, you know, our guiding star or our vision can, can increase a little bit. So let's adapt to what we've done. And so it's kind of almost a living document and a, a moving element. It's a living organization again. And as you develop, the transformation plan will develop with that. So a lot of times what we see with companies is we go in for a three to four month digital transformation strategy piece, and we stay with them for two to three years or more. Because we go with the companies in their journey as they transform, we continue to evolve with them. And this is the most exciting part of the work that I do, right? So we grow with the organization, we develop with them. And we become part of that organization's journey as well. And it's a learning for me as well, because I learn through that journey every time it's a unique journey. We build very strong relationships with the people that we work with. And we are putting proof to the pudding because we are not just saying what your plan should be, but we're living it with you. I love that. I think that the way that you talk about, so kind of going back what you said earlier about the organization being like a living organism. Um, what I was thinking while you were talking was that having the human element that we've been discussing is almost like the organization's blind spot. And the way that you talk about digital transformation is similar to what we've been talking about with the values contract in that kind of having an organizational level of self-awareness of where I think there's a real tendency to go for the next trend and always want to implement things because they're new and shiny without having the awareness and thinking through how it will fully work on an organizational level so having people like yourself and other kind of digital transformation consultants working alongside and growing with the company and helping them to see that journey through it's almost like you are giving them the sense of self-awareness being a mirror to reflect on the kind of blind spots that they have when it comes to implementing these new innovations. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is um, part of the, re the reflection through, through these digital transformation journeys. The first stage of, you know, as you've seen in, in my book, there are four stages of transformation. And the first stage is situational analysis, which looks at your current situation. And I, I think I do make a reference to it in the book where I say, it can be a tough process because it's like holding up a mirror to your organization and seeing what works, what doesn't work. And this honest reflection is necessary because that helps us define a plan that's implementable. 
right? That reflects the reality of the organization and what the company can achieve in, in a certain time frame. So this is this kind of holding up a mirror. And through implementing these types of processes, I have had personally to hold up a mirror to myself, especially through, through my own entrepreneurial journey, right? When I started my company in 2012, there was a lot of self-reflection that was necessary. Coming out of the traditional consulting business um, and, and starting up as a foreign woman in, in Switzerland, in Europe, there was a lot of self-reflection that I needed to do. I had to break a lot of my own biases and kind of deconstruct myself and rebuild myself to be someone that I want to be. Um, and I think this is what we do with organizations with digital transformation to a certain extent. And this is where the leadership transformation is so important because when we hold up a mirror to your company and do a situational analysis to say, what's working, what's not working, let's try to address these issues openly. Some leaders might think, okay, this is an attack on myself and how I've been doing things, but it's not. It's a learning journey together. And if you're ready for that learning journey, we can transform and do really great things together. Um, and I do, I have had situations where I've turned down projects from companies because I didn't feel the leaders were ready for that journey. You know, they wanted a simple tech implementation or they wanted a, a digital transformation without the people transformation. Um, and I felt that going into such an environment, they would not be able to accept some of the outcomes that we would produce as a business. Um, so this is, this is also an interesting, um, and I have a, a very clear you know, I don't work with a-holes rule. <laughs> so Love it. I, I stick to that. <laughs> yeah, it's a learning journey for, for myself and clients as well. I love that. I think, um, yeah, and it's something that I see kind of reflected across your work is the value that you put on humility across all levels of business. Um, and it's something that is really inspirational for someone like myself obviously not in a leadership position um it's inspiring to see people like yourself kind of really championing these values that have for such a long time been missing and i think for especially i mean i'm i'm just on the cusp of being between millennial and gen z and i think gen z's especially give so much importance to the values that you champion so on behalf of all of the Gen Z's out there listening. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think that you are doing really great work and it's really exciting to watch your journey from a distance as well. So um, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, Anna. Can I just say as a closing, I paint a very rosy picture perhaps, but it is a lonely stance to take, particularly when it goes against industry norms. But I do believe, as you said, the next generation of people will value these types of characteristics a lot more in leaders. And I'm really looking forward and excited to see that shift happening in the industries. I agree. I totally agree with you. I think that especially with having people like yourself at the forefront, that these values will slowly, like you said, it's a slow transition. It's a slow burn with any change these things will slowly seep into the corporate culture. And I have a lot of hope and hearing people like yourself talking about these things brings me even more hope and gets me really excited about the future. So thank you. Finally, is there anything that you would like to plug anywhere that people can follow you? Obviously we referenced the TED talk and I will put that in the show notes, but is there anywhere that people can follow you? I'm very active on LinkedIn, so it would be great if uh, listeners would like to connect with me. I'm always open to connecting and conversing online. 
Um, I'm still active on Twitter. I don't know for how long more, but you know, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, and my book is available on Amazon as well as you can find it on my uh, company website, ladiandpartner.com. Awesome. And we will also add a link to your book on the show notes as well for anyone listening. Thank you again for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Good luck with your future endeavors. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much, Anna. It's really been a pleasure getting to know you as well. So I'm looking forward to future collaboration. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Tech Beyond the Hype. Thank you all for listening and a huge thank you to Kamalish Lardi for joining us today and sharing her invaluable insights into the human side of digital transformation. As the tech industry continues to innovate and emerging technologies increasingly permeate our lives, businesses are going to need to keep transforming in order to keep up. Achieving an environment where this kind of change is possible requires leaders with the authenticity, vulnerability and empathy required to bring everyone along with them on the transformation journey. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find out more about how emerging technologies and big business trends are shaping the future of work, please do make sure to like and subscribe to Tech Beyond the Hype on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Tech Beyond the Hype is a Tech Target original production.